Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was definitely a crisis of confidence in 1923. There was also everything that had come out of Versailles. Obviously, the empire had taken on 13 million new people, thanks to taking over Iraq and the German-African empire and bits of the Pacific and so on. But the whole mandate system, because these were a League of Nations mandates, of course, and the manifesto for that, which, okay, it was an imperial land grab by Britain to a large extent, but there was this manifesto that the mandate meant that Britain or whoever the mandate power was had to undertake to privilege the interests of the indigenous people in the territory that they were now controlling. And also, probably more, even more importantly, they had to move them as quickly as was practical to self-government. Now, this idea couldn't really be contained within those mandates. It spread across the wider empire. Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. My name's Ollie Webb-Carter and I'm the editor and your host. And this week's chat is with Matthew Parker, historian of the British Empire and author of One Fine Day, which looks at one day in the life of the empire, the 29th of September 1923, when it reached its largest territorial extent. Now, before all you budding imperialists out there have a sudden burst of patriotic pride... That day is very much the peak, and after that it's all downhill as the empire faded, and after the Second World War, a period of decolonisation ensued, resulting in a loose collection of nations now known as the Commonwealth. Matthew joins me to talk about what the empire meant to both those colonial administrators, but also the colonised. His book is an extraordinary achievement, covering every part of the vast territories ruled over by George V. He's managed to get great reviews from The Guardian, The Times, and The Telegraph, which is an achievement in itself. Coming up on the pod, I've got so many great guests and subjects, including Vikings, Goths and Romans, post-war conflicts with General David Petraeus, the Commander-in-Chief of US forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan, got the interwar British Army with a former head of the army, General Dannett, and much, much more. Please do rate, review, and please, please, please share and tell your friends. Do get in touch with me either on X, Twitter, or history at aspectsofhistory.com, but until then, I'll hand you over to myself and Matthew Parker talking the British Empire. Matthew Parker, welcome to the podcast. And it's a, a great pleasure to have you on. We're here to talk about your new book, One Fine Day. But thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Uh, Matthew, this is this is an 
epic achievement. I've been reading this book and it is wonderful. I know it's taken you quite a long time to write. I can see that a lot of hard work went into this. So I think about, we're talking eight years really, aren't we? It is an absolutely ruinous eight years that it has taken me. And there's various good reasons for that. One is that we did have COVID. Also, it's a global history. And as anyone who writes global history will tell you, don't write global history because it is a huge amount of work. I've probably done research for about five books. Well, I should say for the listeners, this is one fine day. This is the 29th of September, 1923. This is where you focus on the date when the British Empire reaches its territorial extent uh, with the mandate of Palestine, I think. Uh, that is the moment where we've got approximately 460 million people. I, which I think that the population of the planet was a, about 2 billion then. So that, so we're talking, what, a quarter of the population? Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a quarter. It's more than, also, it's more than the United States, Russia and the French Empire combined. Mind-boggling size. Even though I think many of us are aware of the British Empire being a large entity, the size is mind-boggling. but. I should mention that Ireland, whilst it had just fought a war of independence, was still a dominion uh, colony in effect, wasn't it? So not independent till thirty-seven. Yeah, there was a there was an um, imperial conference just starting on. They were they were all arriving on the twenty-seventh of September, um, and for the first time there was an Irish representative, William Cosgrave, the leader of the Free State, and he turned up. And yes, he it was still a dominion. It was still under George the Fifth. And everyone was absolutely delighted. They said, oh, we've solved, the Irish problem is solved at last, hooray. And this is this was part of a sort of general feeling of optimism in many ways on this day. You know, there'd been this revolt in Iraq that had been suppressed. There'd been, Ireland, as I've said, was settled forever, we hope. And Egypt as well, there'd been a lot of trouble in uh, the year or year and two before. So... You know, a lot of the problems had gone away when all these the Dominion leaders and and India and Ireland met on that day in London, which was the most populous city in the world. At that so you have these Dominion leaders there, and as you say, they're they're all optimistic. But the the overriding feeling reading the book is that this empire, okay, so it's reached its peak, but that means there's only one way, and that's yes. down. Yes, and of course, no one knew that at the time. Of course, yes. But but I, I couldn't help. There are sections in the book that, you know, you just... I was dipping in and, and more in and in and in, and, and in the end just was t- turning the page. That It's a, a page turner. And the point where I think in Malaya in particular, it's just this override... I mean, there's Somerset Maugham in there who I've, I adore as a writer, but the feeling you get of these colonial administrators and planters in in Malaya are it just feels like this empire's tired and it's in its it's its day is done i think that's a sort of the first world war obviously had a massive impact before the first world war there were actually very few places on the globe which weren't part of some empire or other and then the war happens and you know, Russia, the Russian Empire collapses, the German, the Austro-Hungarian, the Ottoman, and suddenly empire is it's, it's sort of out of date, you know, and someone said, actually um, Milner, who was a previous colonial secretary, said empire is now 
something of a dirty word. It sort of brings up ideas of sort of repression of people being governed by people they don't want to be governed by. And so there was a, there was definitely a crisis of confidence um, in, in 1923. There was also everything that had come out of Versailles. Obviously, the empire had taken on, I think, 13 million new people, thanks to taking over Iraq and, you know, the, the German African empire and bits of the Pacific and so on. But the whole mandate system, because these were a League of Nations mandates, of course, and the manifesto for that, which, okay, it was an imperial land grab by, by the Britain to a large extent, but there was this manifesto that the mandate meant that the, the Britain or whoever the, the mandate power was had to undertake to sort of privilege the, the interests of the indigenous people in the territory that they were now controlling. And also, probably more, even more importantly, they had to move them as quickly as was practical to self-government. Now, this, this idea couldn't really be contained within those mandates. It sort of spread across the wider empire. So people in, you know, these, the, the grandees meeting in September 1923 in London were saying, well, you know, what's the empire for? Are we only, is our only purpose? to dismantle ourselves? Are we just a self-liquidating concern, as the Times asked at the time? And there were, there were sort of broader, um, you know, broader changes. Obviously, mass democracy comes in in 1918 in Britain. There's, there's universal male franchise, and there's votes for most women over the age of 30. And this is a great change, and it's a great change of priority for the London governments when suddenly they actually have to homes fit for heroes and healthcare and obviously huge pension costs. So they really take the eye off the ball for, as far as the empire is concerned. They're much more concentrated on the domestic um, electorate. Um, and also there's that feeling, well, hold on, we're, we're now democratic, but we're autocratic abroad, you know, in, our, in other places. And what really what sort of emerges from that is quite a few concessions in terms of constitutional um, setups. In India, of course, had the Montague Chancellor reforms. And in Ceylon and in Nigeria, there were there were sort of small concessions made to some sort of elective principle. What London found very soon is once you make a small concession, then you just increase the appetite for more demands in terms of Indigenous people having decisions over their government. How influential were other parts of the empire that were increasingly gaining more autonomy? With Ireland, for example, Ireland becomes a bit of a rallying cry in in India, doesn't it? That... That's right. Um, you know, the example of Ireland inspires the National Congress in India, and they in turn inspire. There's congresses popping up everywhere, and organisations. Um, there's, there's a very interesting sort of move. There's a sort of even before the war, there's a feeling amongst particularly non-white people in the empire, they've been treated as inferior. And there's a fantastic um, quote from Norman Manley, who was fighting, fought in the First World War in the British Army and obviously becomes the, the first prime minister of Jamaica, saying that British rule, the British empire, relies on a carefully nurtured sense of inferiority in the governed. And this manifests itself in lots of ways, in day-to-day -day things where people were expected to doff their caps to white people or serve them first in shops, uh, and particularly in education as well, where pe children, you know, families, amazing stories of children in 
that in Yoruba land in Nigeria being taught about the kings and queens of England and the heights of the Chilterns. And one one woman who was a one of the very few women with any sort of agency, British women with agency in the empire, Sylvia Sylvia Ross, she's called, um, went into a classroom and saw forty small bemused children looking at a blackboard with Eleanor of Aquitaine written on it. And so Obviously, I'm laughing, but it is it, 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 it's almost it's, not funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's not funny, and and people, you know, people. We're getting angry about this. There's an Indian journalist I read who's writing in, in September 23 saying, well, you know, these the Indian boys, they go into this system and they're taught consistently that they are inferior and that everything important and right is British and white. And they come out, not Indian, not English, but he is as, as a sorry ape. But people were, were were really beginning to react about this. And one of the stories I tell in my book is about Adelaide Casey Hayford, who was a Sierra Leonean-born African woman, although she had, as everyone in Sierra Leone did, like, Sierra Leone history is actually fascinating. It's a real sort of mix of... It was a sort of dumping ground for people from, you know, people from the Maroon War, we captives who were, who were sort of rescued from slave ships by the Royal Navy. They were all dumped in, in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Um, anyway, she emerges from this very interesting background, including she had a white, she had a white grandfather as well. She's brought up in, they, she leaves, um, Sierra Leone very young. She's brought up in Jersey, St. Helier, um, where she goes to school. She's the only, her and her sister are the only black girls. And she says, and I quote almost directly, there was no racial prejudice at all. Everyone was incredibly sweet and kind. Um, but anyway, when her father dies, his dying wishes for her to return to Sierra Leone. And she goes there and she, See, she's got uh, her, she's got nieces and nephews, and she says the schools are just awful. They're particularly bad for women. But she says they just teach Africans to hate themselves and to want to be white. So she sets up, and it opens on the 29th September 1923, a technical school for girls in Sierra Leone, um, with money raised. She couldn't raise any local people. They didn't want anything to do with this. And they were very westernized elites in Freetown at this time. Um, so she goes to America and she meets W.E.D. Du Bois and she meets, um, you know, she goes to the Tuskegee Institute and it really sort of plugs into that whole um, Afro-American thing, which is, you know, really on the rise at this time. It's the Harlem Renaissance and so on. She raises money there and she opens the school in my day. And she's an amazing woman, absolutely. Um, and, th and those are the kind of stories that I was really interested in. I particularly, and this is another reason why it took so long, is because I really wanted to find the voices of the colonized. It's so easy, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, it's so easy to find memoirs of colonial officers. They all wrote their memoirs. There's a huge official, um, you know, there's the whole official archive as well with all their letters and telegrams. But to find the voices of the colonized, that took a lot of time and effort and you know, luck. Um, and and that's what, that's what the book is. It's sort of people and stories but also stories from the other side of the fence, so to speak. Yeah, well, I see that, absolutely. But one other thing you do in the book as well is you sprinkle in there a novelist from the time that you use, uh, E.M. Forster, George Orwell, and I've mentioned Somerset Maugham. And they do give a... Um, they do show the side of the coloniser that... I guess you know if you're reading the novel, life to be colonized by these people, it, it this is just awful. It really is, as you've just in, illustrated. So the novelist that you've picked, 
do seem to give a, a quite an accurate picture, even though they're not writing history of the administrators in yeah, these. Yeah, I, 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 I sort of, I really don't make any political. I mean, I'm, my first degree was English literature, and I, I'm an absolute huge fan of, or he Forster in particular. Um, and they're they're very observant, they're very articulate, and they they're not they haven't really sort of got any, you know, they're sort of independent. You know, they're not colonial officers, they're not. Um, you know, members of the Indian National Congress, they, they sort of float in between all of that. Um, and, and they're part of also, they're part of the, the sort of cultural history. I mean, Passage to India is published in 19, early 1924. It causes an outcry. You know, it's seen as a brilliant novel, but its depiction of the English, the Anglo Indians, the English people in India is, is brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, and then there's other people. There's um, D. H. Lawrence is the other novelist that I I do feature because he goes to Australia. He, um, you know, he had his, uh, as I'm sure you know, he had a German wife, and the war was very uncomfortable for him, and he was desperate to get out of England. Um, and he he goes to Salon first of all, where he finds there's just swarming brown people, as he describes them. You know, he, he and he found it too hot, and 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 so on. But he he meets some Australians, so he thinks Australia is this young country. Um, I was very keen in the book. I think a lot of books like the Empire really kind of ignore the the, the sort of dominions. They ignore Australia, for instance, which we've well, just been through this massively traumatic experience in the First World War, where they they didn't have a choice in declaring war, did they? That's right. They would, you know, George V declared war in 1914 on behalf of the entire empire. Yeah, and and it's a really interesting story of how the war divided Australians. And they had two referendums about introducing conscription, and both of them were surprisingly defeated. So they were the only they were the only allied power that didn't have they were all volunteers. Um and there's also another sort of very important issue in terms of the the, the sort of insecurity and weakness of the empire, and that is the threat of Japan. Because in the year before Britain cancels its treaty with Japan, um, they have to choose between America and Japan, basically, uh, and they go for America, which is it's a great what if. Well, they they had. I mean, this is again. This is this was being debated at the Imperial Conference. Canada said, "Of course you, of course, because America said if you make this treaty with Japan, it's going to be an unfriendly act because Japan American relations for lots of reasons which are interesting but too long to go into here are very very bad." And so they've got this massive decision to make. And Canada says, of course, we've got to go with America. We can't have a hostile country on our southern border. But Australia and New Zealand say, no, hold on. If we annoy Japan, they can land an army of 100,000 on anywhere on our coast. And we have, we're, we're so underpopulated. You know, we're sitting ducks. So of course, hence the Singapore base is, comes under construction, but also Australia is very, very keen to get population. They want to populate this em huge, empty country. Um, and so there's a huge, massive campaign run. Um, and, and they want, they have a white Australia policy. Um, so they want Anglo-Saxons. They want basically British people to come. And there's all sorts of incentives are laid on to go. And I actually look at some of the, because this is, this is one of the few sort of direct impacts of the empire on working class people in Britain. It's really, it's, it's missionaries, it's supporting the efforts of the missionaries and it's migration. And virtually every family would have someone who'd gone to Canada, who'd gone to Australia. Um, but this is really upped in the, in 1923. And the Bruce, the Australian prime minister wants, he wants a hundred thousand people a year to go to Australia. He doesn't get that. 
But I follow the stories of some of the people who went out there and were put on these sort of farms uh, and had very mixed experiences, to, to put it mildly. And it's the beginning of an idea of Australian national identity separate from the empire. Because, of course, there's been four years with no migration, and Bruce's cabinet is the first one all born in Australia. Um, so things are changing there, and the English are coming in, and they're called Poms, and they're, you know, they're sort of no longer sort of brothers in the way that they were before, which is absolutely fascinating. And Lawrence addresses that in his, in his, his novel Kangaroo, which is published in September 1923. Uh, and it's not his greatest work. I don't know if you've you've read it. I, I haven't. People have. It's very long. He wrote it very quickly, and it kind of shows. But it's fascinating. His, um, you know, his take on the political divisions in Australia, where you've got a lot a big communist party, and you've got a, a, a sort of slightly fascistic um, sort of empire loyalty group, and they're clashing in the streets. They're fighting in the streets about the future of Australia, which I found really interesting. That is interesting because um, I was talking with Christopher Clarke, uh, the historian of the 19th century. He was writing, uh, talking about 1848 revolutions and and how that impacted Australia. And one thing I picked up in your book uh, quite early on, there's, there is a, a complaint that the British or the English are exporting lower grade emigrants to Australia. One in particular who commits this horrific crime. And is is barely isn't punished too too badly for it. As he kills, uh, sexually assaults and murders a child. I think that's it... right. Yeah, Hoodyfoot. He was called. Yes. Hoodyfoot. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, and so the, so this is a long running complaint of Australia against the sort of mother country that that it. Yeah, there, there's sort of there's sort of clashing priorities really. Um, Britain, I think, it had a population of forty six million, and this was considered eight million too many. So they wanted to get rid of surplus population. Um, and there was also huge unemployment in 23. There's like 2 million unemployed. This is unprecedented. And this is, for, again, partly due to the war, but partly due to the fact that the European market for British exports, which had been always been more far more important than the empire, had totally collapsed. You know, Europe is in chaos. The French are in, have just moved into the Rhineland to get reparations. There's revolutions happening everywhere. There's coups happening. Hitler's marching in the streets of Munich. Um, militias everywhere. So, th and they're impoverished and their currencies are in, you know, the, the Deutschmark's in free fall at this point. So, so Britain has lost this market. And part of the thought behind pushing migration of British people to places like Australia is to increase the Australian market for British goods. But what, what tended to happen though is that the people who were who took up the offer to migrate to Australia tended to be the urban poor and people who for various reasons hadn't made it work for them in Britain, i.e. the most useless people. Uh, and what Australia wanted was hardy rural people. They didn't want people going to the cities and competing with Australians for those sort of jobs. They wanted people developing the interior for agriculture. So you've got this this absolute fear of the migrants coming in and drifting to the cities and competing with, as I said, with Australians. Um, so the whole, the whole project is sort of really not that well thought, thought, thought through. And for some of the, the personal experiences of people, some of them are absolutely heartbreaking.
when they go to these these places in the middle of nowhere with sometimes with small children and the the the, the project is not well thought through but but really fascinating how Australia, as I said, is deviating in its priorities from its previous loyalty to London. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And one thing I, I was just intrigued about is, it's okay, so it's the date 29th of September. But as you've just mentioned, you know, there are so many things happening either on that day or in the month of September. And I was wondering, this is during your research... Is it was it a kind of strange, mad coincidence that the date of the territorial expansion also seems to coincide with so many extraordinary stories that illustrate that expansion, that peak of the empire and then decline? Or, you know, am I being just, you know, this is a, the work of a great craftsman in this book. So really, this kind of thing happened at any other time of, of yeah, the year. I think you could sort of pick out any day in history and find surprising and amazing stories. If you, if you actually seriously look at that day and don't bring your own preconceptions or your own sort of baggage, you know, I, I really didn't want this empire book to be a polemic. I wanted it to be about people and stories. And I was quite strict with myself. I mean, I remember a, a writer friend said, what do you mean you're limiting yourself to one day? This is going to be incredibly restrictive, but actually it's a, it's a sort of good discipline. Because it means that, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm looking at newspapers, as I said, I'm also looking at official documents, and you come across things that would that push you into new and surprising directions. So, for instance, I discovered a, a telegram sent by the Colonial Office at 11.15 on Saturday, the 29th of September, to the governor of Kenya, complaining at the, the news of the um, very lenient sentence given after a trial to a white settler who had beaten one of his black laborers to death. And this is, this has caused complete outrage amongst us. Sort of, I mean, there's, there's African, there's humanitarian groups in London who are keeping, you know, keeping watch on this sort of stuff. And so that led me into the whole story of um, the, the forced labor in Kenya, which I probably would, you know, would have sort of come to with from a, a less interesting angle than this actual incident this actual trial um so it's really sort of you know that discipline was good and it led me also to ocean the ocean island story with a where an island that is almost entirely phosphate is being dug out from under the feet of the people who've been living there for thousands of years or, or um, i was looking at their population today which is i think 330 today yeah yeah um and they're you know they're, they're very they're dependent on desalination plants, and it's a it's a really tragic story. Most of them 
um, as you know from the book, were actually shipped off the island. And they bought an island in Fiji for them of Lord Lieberholm, who for some reason owns the island. He's, he's the well, they nearly went to the Falklands, didn't they? No, no. What, no the Falklands thing is one of the... the there was a series of, of British re- residents, of, you know, re- bosses, basically, of the of the local colonial government. And they they were faced with this dilemma. They knew that, that, that this huge phosphate company, which was supplying um, crucial fertilizer to particularly New Zealand and Australia, had sort of created that sort of identity was a sort of the breadbasket of the empire or the dairy of the empire. But they're not actually very fertile in places. So they needed all of this phosphate. And so the, the wider imperial good, and of course, once Australia start growing stuff, then that makes food cheaper for the worker back in Britain, which is obviously the key market for their of their exports. Um, which means that the bosses can pay them less, and you know, there's a sort of virtuous circle for the empire. But the, but these, you know, some of these resident officers said, "Well, hold on, you know, this is completely unfair. You're not paying them enough. You're, you know, you're basically removing their the physical body of their home." And people who complain too much found themselves posted to the Falkland Islands, which was where, where you went if you really annoyed the your superiors. It was the it was the sort of the most dismal posting in the empire by by yeah. Yeah, not sought after at all. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Burma and Malaya. These two colonies. I mean, Malaya. I was was reading um, at what point in the book was the most wealthy col- or the colony that gave them that provided the most um, financially for the empire. Yeah, I think per head it was the richest place in the world. Fascinating, and this is at this stage where all these uh, all these colonials who, who are living there are described by Somerset Maugham as the kind of dregs of the empire. Really, well, there was yeah. I mean, there was a. I mean, that's not really specific to Malaya. There was a sort of metropole. You know, back in the metropole, back in Britain, colonials were were, were slightly sort of low. They were slightly low rent. Um, and, I mean, Noel Coward said of Malaya that it was a first rate place for second rate people. And there was this—it's a sort of snobbishness. You see it in the Enforcers, Howard's End, where which is where there's the colonials against the metropolitan sort of intellectuals. But Malaya was particularly interesting because of its huge tin wealth, which had been developed by the Chinese, and and but the real the real sort of money spinner was rubber, which was almost all sent to the you know to feed the American motor industry. So it brought in dollars. Um, which is which is absolutely essential. But yeah, Somerset Maugham, he's sort of yeah, he, I, I, it's a, a sort of wistful portrayal of the British there, who was sort of they were strangers, they were sort of floating on the surface, and they hardly hardly any of them spoke local languages. They didn't really socialise with local people, and this was almost a sort of deliberate thing because they what was all important, not just in Malaya but particularly in Africa as well, was white prestige. This was the thing. It was this the respect that local people had for the English people's whiteness, their white superiority, that really kept them from just rising up and killing all the people, which obviously they could do in you know an isolated farmer in Kenya or Malaya is pretty defenseless. And so it was very, very important to keep that separation from the local people. But it just meant that particularly wives, it was a really lonely lonely existence without any sort of roots and very, some people did there's there's someone in my book who is the leader of the chinese 
um, sort of community in, in Malaya. And he says, well, we need to, we need to sort of, we need to get British people who actually want to make Malaya their home and invest in it and, and, you know, stay here and consider themselves Malayan. Um, and he also said that, you know, Chinese people should do that as well. And also Indian people. And it's a very racially mixed country for reasons of well, commerce because the people have been imported to, to tap the rubber and to dig the tin. And so, and he, he, he lament, Tang Cheng Lok, he laments how divided Malaya is. And he says, you know, if, if we have an external invader, you know, it's, everything's going to fall apart, which is, of course, exactly what happens. What's interesting about the territorial extent of the empire is that it's almost in direct contradiction to the, the quote from Palmerston, a, the great imperialist, who says, all we want is trade. I've got it written down, you see, Matthew. Yeah. All we want is trade and land is not necessary for trade. We can carry on commerce very well on ground belonging to other people. And so obviously he's he's speaking well before 1923. I, I forget exactly when, mid-1800s, presumably. What went wrong? I mean, this insatiable demand for land, was it com- competition with other European rivals that meant Britain had no choice but to claim the land? Or was it just a greed? That, that... Yeah, I mean, this, is, this sort of really goes to the question of sort of how the empire came about um and one one of the things that i really learned doing doing this research on this is just how incredibly complex and how different other some parts of the empire were from each other you can't generalize about the empire in any way whatsoever without making a fool of yourself i mean there's some places that are jungle there's some places that are desert there's some places that are teeming cities you know there's places that have been um, you know, virtually in the Stone Age, there's others that are civilizations far older than than Britain's. I mean, the Sri Lankan nationalists were, were fond of pointing out that they were building massive reservoirs and incredible temples when the British were still living in caves, which is completely true. So you can't, it's very difficult to generalize. And in terms of how the empire came about, the one really repeating answer is to stop the French. I mean, you look at Uganda, Kenya, New Zealand, um, India, a lot of it is to stop the French, who are obviously are Britain's historical rivals for over centuries. Um, but there was a debate. I mean, if you look at Nigeria, there was a debate between different points of view about how much control should, is, was necessary or desirable in terms of political control, in terms of law and so on. And some people, there's a, there was a famous, um, trader, W.R. Holt, Liverpudlian. Lagos was basically Liverpool. It was, you know, if you look at Lagos newspapers, all the advertisements for the, the trading companies, they're not just from Liverpool, they're all in the Liver building itself. It's amazing. So this is Liverpool, just like, you know, Burma was basically Glasgow um, in terms of who was running it. Um, and, and he said, we don't need, we, you know, we, we, we don't want to take on the expense and the hassle and the risk of, of you know, subjecting these people to our direct rule. But then other people, Goldie, who was the sort of conquistador of Nigeria, said, well, we can't do business unless we have control or unless there's contract law and unless there's law and order and, you know, police run by us. So there was that debate went on. But a, but a lot of the time it was business preceded empire. If you look at the Pacific, for instance, which I, which I write quite a lot about, I was really interested in, in, in the history of that. You had from the 1840s, you had American whalers turning up and you had sandalwood traders and you had people forcibly recruiting labor for the guano mines of Peru and so on. 
And it was mayhem. And the same as in New Zealand, the traders got there first. And the British government actually annexed these places in order to control the very unpleasant activities of European traders. So it was a sort of, you know, paternalism, um, even, even way back in New Zealand in the 1840s or the Pacific in the 1880s. Um, so there's lots of just like, everything is very complex. Everything is nuanced. And they're all, all of these stories are, are, have a unique setting. Um, so if we move forward a bit beyond 23, within sort of 30, 40 years, Britain's going through this huge period of decolonization, which is interesting because you have the Duke of Devonshire, who's the colonial secretary on the day that you're writing about. And then I think it's his son-in-law is Harold Macmillan, who is prime minister when a lot of decolonization is 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 taking place. So I was just so interested in the um in the kind of colonial rulers. Was this kind of sense that I got from reading your book that the empire was on a downturn? was understood by those leaders who would then be leading um, the country 30, 40 years later. And so were mindful that this just was unsustainable. Yeah, I think there's certainly there's certainly that feeling. I mean, I was very, I was very struck by reading the Prince of Wales's comments after his tour of India. He's, he sent out... Um, yeah, mean, he thinks it's a disaster, doesn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, they decided the background to this is that they, you know, all these people, they... they, they so ask what unites the empire, and it isn't, it isn't really business because, as you said, it didn't really actually make um, economic sense to take over Tanzania. I mean, Leonard Wolf, who is a who is a sort of fervent contemporary anti-imperialist, says he he does a study of Tanzania and Kenya. And says well, actually, our trade was growing more in German Tanzania than it was in. So why 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 do we now have control of this place? But the, certainly there there was a sort of growing nationalisms all all across the empire. And I think this is important. It's really not just about the British attitude. The local attitudes are really are really sort of turning um towards um wanting respect, wanting more autonomy. But interestingly, this generation of of sort of nationalist leaders in West Africa or in the, the Pacific or in the Caribbean, they don't envisage actually leaving the empire altogether. They want more home rule but the idea doesn't really crop up of actually exiting from the empire altogether, because there is a lot of anger. There's a lot of you know respect for Britain and and you know its material wealth and the institutions the they quite like, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a really fascinating character that's, who kind of sums all this up. It's Herbert Macaulay, who is a Nigerian nationalist, and he. Is considered he is constantly on the attack on the Nigerian colonial government for um, purloining land unfairly or, or lots of sort of unfair practices that they're carrying out locally. But he still and one of one of the great finds of the research was a letter that a long letter that he wrote to Marcus Garvey in America when Garvey was setting up his trying to set up his steam the Black Star steamship line, which is very much happening at this time. Um, and he's he's full of criticism for local policy, but for the empire as a whole, he thinks it's absolutely the most marvelous thing. And I, mean, I, I just want to read you a little quote. There's a guy called Manuel Desai who was a Kenyan Indian 
Um, and so he'd been very much part of the campaign by Kenyan Indians to have some sort of political rights, um, you know, alongside this absolutely poisonous white settler community in, in, in Kenya. And he says, you know, the, he, his view of the empire was that it promised lots. He says, it's a wonderful conglomeration of races and creeds and nations, which offered the only solution to the great problem of mankind, the problem of brotherhood. If the British Empire fails, then all else fails. No more potent League of Nations was ever founded. But then comes this huge caveat. He says, either the British Empire must admit the equality of its different people, irrespective of the colours of their skin and the place of their birth, or it must abandon its attempts to rule a mixture of people. There can be no halfway. And this is really where the edifice of empire cracks. The British can't get over the the white superiority, which is the big justification for empire. They're there because they're better at things, and these people need our help. That's the justification. That's the paternalism. That's trusteeship. But baked into that is this idea of white supremacy, white superiority, or British superiority, which so offended and annoyed people you know, these highly educated people. I mean, I think he'd been to Cambridge and he'd done a doctorate. And, you know, these are these are highly educated people, far more better educated probably than a lot of the, the colonial officers. But they're treated because of their colour of their skin and because of their nationality as inferior. So this is both the sort of, the cope, it's the sort of foundation of the empire, but it's also the reason why these sharp cracks are appearing. But it will be, going back to your original question, it will be the next generation very much inspired by people like Macaulay, Garvey, and so on, who will who will make that step, make that sort of mental break with the idea of the of the empire for their country. Well, I think we're coming to the end, Matthew. It's been um, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I just wondered where you think. I mean, because you you know we're on the hundredth anniversary. I don't think that was your original plan when you set out to write the book. <laughs> No, we actually joked, God, wouldn't it be funny if it took so long that it came out on the anniversary? So, yeah. Um, but it's been kind of better. Also, over the period, lots, of, lots has actually happened over the period of me researching and writing this book. You know, you've had um, the growing reparations movement um, in the Caribbean and in Africa, which is really still very much, a, you know, an important thing. You've had the Colston statue coming down. You've had BLM. And, you know, the ground has shifted. Uh, and now you have Barbados leaving the Commonwealth. And Barbados is like the most little England place in the Caribbean. You know, I know well. Um, and it's astonishing. That, and so it's not just, you know, the British people who are debating the empire. You know, I mean, there's a lot published, as you know, and there's a lot of sort of strong feelings um, and a lot of ignorance, has to be said. But also, you know, it's also um, places like Barbados and Jamaica looking at their history and saying, well, actually, you know, we need to be, this is still holding us back. It's still making us feel inferior, the fact that, you know, our head of state is a, a white guy sitting 2,000 miles away. And you look at Australia as well. They've got a big debate about, you know, the, the treatment of native Australians. Um, and they're also debating, you know, and challenging links to, to Britain. So it's not just here where this is absolutely hot topic, but it's all, all over what was the empire as well. And you've also got former French colonies uh, trying to join the Commonwealth. Yes, or, or wanting to kick the French recently in Niger, you know, kick out the French ambassador and the, the French soldiers, yeah. Um, 
But you know, as as I think someone said in the House of Commons, you know, the French got the French sort of got the empty bits and the colour blue in Africa and, and Britain got where people actually lived and worked and bought stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's so it's very different. I don't claim to be an expert at all on the the what was the French Empire. So I'm not gonna go well, I certainly don't. Matthew, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. The book, it's out now. So listeners, I highly encourage you. This is a an epic work that is it's quite awe-inspiring, really. But thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure, Ollie. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on X or the Twitter, or whatever it's called now, or history at aspectsofhistory.com. There's plenty more great history to come, as I mentioned at the start, so please do share, rate and review if you can. In the meantime, thank you and good night. <laughs>